have you ever had a situation where you and another individual went through a, a similar experience together but had drastically different perspectives on what took place? Have you ever had a moment like that? I mean, if you have a, have a spouse, you might know what I'm talking about. If you have siblings, you might know what I'm talking about. We can encounter the same thing but have totally different outlooks on what's taking place. Uh, there's a company that held their annual softball game a little while back. And so they have just one softball game a year. It's the marketing team versus the support staff. And so they would play their softball game against one another, just one game. And this year, the support staff absolutely crushed the marketing team, just destroyed them, wasn't even close. Well, the next Monday, when everybody got into the office, the marketing team showed why they were worth their wages because there was a staff memo that went out to everybody in the company and it reported on the game, and here's what it said. The marketing department is pleased to announce that we came in second place in the recent softball season after losing but one game all year. <laughs> but wait. The support department, however, had a rather dismal season, winning only one game. Very clever, right? You look at that and you're like, we had the same experience, but they, but they took one perspective. They said, well, we only lost one game all year, and they only won one game all year. There's another story, kind of a parable on perspective, about a man who came to, a, to an old construction site where he saw some stonemasons at work, and he went up to the stonemasons, and he went to the first one, and he said, uh, what is it that you're doing, sir? And the guy said, well, can't you tell? Obviously, I'm chipping away at a stone. He said, okay. And then he went to his second stonemason who was nearby, and he said, what are you doing? He said, can't you see I'm constructing a wall? And then he went to the last and the third stonemason who was there, and he said, what are you doing? He said, well, can't you see I'm building a cathedral, right? They were all on the same construction site, all doing the same thing, but had a vastly different perspective on what it was that they were doing. The truth is, in big ways and little ways, we all have a certain perspective on life. And in fact, there's a perspective that all of us have, at least a way that we go through life interpreting the things and experiences and relationships that we have that academics call a worldview. Have you ever heard of a worldview? We all have them, whether we even know what a worldview is or not. A worldview, one definition that we can work with, is an all-encompassing perspective on everything that exists and matters to us. A worldview is this all-encompassing perspective on everything that exists and that matters to us. Another way that I like to think about worldview is a, a way that we think about the world that helps us to make sense of it. And your worldview, the perspective by which you and I look at the world, it's most often revealed the clearest in the way that we answer some of the big questions, most some of the most important questions in life, the questions of like, why are we here? How did we get here? Does our life have meaning and purpose? Why are things the way that they are? Can things change in my life? Your worldview, it shapes and it informs the experiences that we have with the world around us. It's kind of like lenses. And depending upon the lenses that you're looking through, certain things are more emphasized than others. You ever wonder why certain people have certain perspectives on politics or on ethics? It all comes back to your worldview and my worldview. 
So here's my question. You have a worldview. I have a worldview. Do you know what it is? Do you know the lenses through which you are interpreting the world? Do you know the lenses by which you are giving meaning to the things around you? If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe the Bible, then your answer to that question should be yes. Not only do I know that I have a worldview, but I know what it is. And the reason why I say if you're a Christian, yes should be your answer, is because right here in this book, as we talked about a little bit last week, we have God's answers to life's most important questions. This is God's inspired word. It is his revelation to us of himself, of ourselves, and of the world around us. We understand ourselves because God has shared it with us, because we know it through this book. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so excited about studying the book of Genesis with you. Because the book of Genesis is this first book of the Bible where God comes and he answers life's most important questions. In fact, I said last week, that is the purpose of the book of Genesis, to answer life's most important questions, to give God's answer to them. And so what happens in the book of Genesis is the questions of, how did we get here? Why are we here? Why is our world the way that it is? And what, if anything, can be done about our situation are all answered in Genesis, or the beginnings of those answers are presented to us. So last week, I kind of gave an overview of the book of Genesis. Today, we're going to do a deep dive. We're going to do a deep dive into just one verse of Genesis. It's the very first verse of Genesis. It's Genesis 1-1. And so I want to read this verse to you. Let's look at it together. Some of you probably already have it memorized, and then we're going to talk about the significance of what's being said here. Are you ready? Here it is, very simply. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. This is a profound statement. And there is so much to be said here. I know of of one pastor who preached literally six messages on this one verse. I'm not going to do that. We're just going to do one, okay? Because in Genesis 1-1 is a very bold claim. It is, it is a foundational claim to understand, really, the, the rest of this book, ourselves and our God. The claim of Genesis 1-1, if you hear, heard it, is this. There is one God, and everything that exists does so because he created it. There is one God, and everything that exists does so because he created it. Genesis 1-1 says, there was a time before time. And God existed outside of time and space. And that time and space was actually created by him as part of our universe. Everything that you and I know comes into this world because of God. The magnitude of accepting this claim, the implications of believing this to be true are tremendous. And at the end of the message, we're going to look at those in, in detail. But I want us to, to just get a sense how big this is, how, how this ultimately stands in opposition to, to other worldviews, how this claim that there's one God who created everything that exists, how this has caused battles in society and in, in cultures. 
Now, before we look at those implications, there is a, a much more deeper and foundational question that all of us need to wrestle with. The question is very simply this. Genesis 1-1 makes this claim, God created everything. Why should we accept the claim of Genesis 1-1? Have you even thought about that question? Because this isn't just like an empty phrase, God created the heavens and the earth. Like this is a big thing. Do you accept it? More foundationally, should you even accept it? Should we accept this worldview? Should we accept this lens as a lens through which we should see the rest of, of the world? And what I get to come before you today and say is that in this book, in God's word, it doesn't simply come to us and simply make the claim that God exists. It actually encourages us to wrestle through the question of whether or not we should accept that claim. And now in order to do this and to do this well, we need to go beyond the pages of the book of Genesis because Genesis just presents this claim as, as though everybody knows it to be true. In the beginning, there was God and he created everything. But, but there's this other passage, Romans chapter 1. I invite you to turn into your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. If you have one of those Bibles that are here in the seats, um, you could turn to page 939 and you'll beat everybody else there. All right? So, but Romans chapter 1, verse 1, it's in the New Testament there. The Bible invites us to examine the claim of whether or not God does exist and that He, do, that he did create Everything. I love this about the Word of God. It invites us to engage our rational minds as well as our hearts. The Bible is not a book that says God exists. You just have to take a leap of faith and go with it. Instead, listen to these words in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a very weighty verse. We'll come back to it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has, what? Shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since when? The creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were what? Darkened. Darkened. Did you pick up what Romans 1 is coming and telling us here? In this passage, the book of Romans, like the rest of the Bible, it makes the assertion that God does exist. And this shouldn't surprise us, but it goes deeper than that. It goes further than that. Verse 19 and verse 20 tell us that what can be known about God should be plain to us, and specifically that his divine attributes or his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, are on display in the creation that he has made. Paul is coming and he's saying to us here, inspired by God, if you and I step back and we look at creation, if we look at creation, the reality that God exists should be evident to us. And specifically in two ways. We should see evidences of his eternal power. And secondly, his divine nature, his character. And the reality of, of who he is as a God should be known to us. Did you know that about the Bible? 
Did you know that God's word is a word that says, just believe it, it doesn't just say believe it on faith, but it invites you to actually test and to examine its claims. That's what Paul's doing here. So for the next few moments, that's what I want to do. We know the claim, Genesis 1.1. It says that God created everything. Everything that came into existence was because he created it. Paul ups the ante, and he says, not only did God create everything, but you and I, if we take a moment, if we look at creation, there should be evidences to back up that claim. And so I want to look at three evidences with you. And the first evidence is found when we consider this question. Why is the world here? Why is there something rather than nothing? Maybe even more specifically, how did things even come to be? One of the remarkable thing about science is every so often scientists are in 100% agreement on things. True scientists. There's always a quack out there, right? There's always one guy, you know, he's got to be the outlier. But, but scientists all agree that when you look at our universe, when you look at the atoms, the molecules, the neutrons, everything that make up our universe, they all say that there was a moment, a moment in time when our universe came into existence. Now, growing up, if you were in school, they talked about that moment a lot, and it was referred to as the what? The Big Bang. The Big Bang. Scientists are in as much agreement as they could possibly be that there was a moment in time when the universe came into existence, and they call that moment that came into existence the Big Bang. Now, we're going we're gonna to talk about that in just, just a moment. But there's this other thing. We got these two truths. One is that all scientists say the universe didn't always exist. It came into existence at a specific time and place. But then what scientists also say, though, when you look at our universe, here's what we can say about our universe. Everything in our universe had a cause. It's contingent. Everything in our universe came into existence through something else that previously existed. Are you tracking with me? So we got two competing truths here. One, we have a moment in time when the universe came into existence. But everything within our universe came into existence from something else that already existed in the universe. Are you following this? Does anybody see now a problem? The problem then becomes, how did something come from what? Nothing, when everybody says that it had a starting point, but that starting point had to come from something outside of what? Creation itself. And so there's this astrophysicist, which, by the way, like if you're an astrophysicist, you just sound like the smartest guy in the room, right? You know, it's like, oh, what do you do? Well, I'm an astrophysicist. <laughs> I don't even know what that is, right? But you just sound smart. There's this agnostic astrophysicist, a guy by the name of Robert J. Stroh. Listen to what he's wrestled with. He said, the seed of everything that has happened in the universe was planted in that first instance. Every star, every planet, and every living creature in the universe came into being as a result of events that were set in motion in the moment of the cosmic explosion. The universe flashed into being, and we cannot find out what caused that to happen. I mean, this is... We're wanting to talk now about is there evidence for God in the world and universe that was created. Paul says we should see evidence of his eternal power to bring something from nothing would require something super-natural. It would require a power unlike anything else in our universe. Now, scientists would say that doesn't get us to the God of the Bible. And I would say, 
you're right, but you got this guy, Paul, who some 2,000 years ago inspired by God before we knew anything about the fact that everybody can say the universe began at a specific time and place. We got this guy, Paul, who comes and says, yeah, but if you look at creation, you'll see evidence of his eternal power. I don't know what shows off more power than the ability to bring something from nothing. Are you tracking with me? Evidence number one, I say, is this. The universe has a starting point caused by something outside of our universe. So working from that, we begin to test this, of what Paul is saying. Use your minds, use your rational. Can we get to this power being on display? I say we can. But it's not just there. Paul says in Romans, it's not just his eternal power, but it's also his divine nature. The rest of the Bible talks about the character and nature of our God being a God of order and goodness and perfection. It talks about how he holds all things together. And there's this question that has been wrestled with throughout the ages, the question of how do we explain the perfect conditions for life in this world? Like scientists look and they say, man, our universe had to have a cause outside of itself to begin. But the other question that scientists and philosophers have wrestled with is how do you explain how our earth is so finely tuned to support organic life and how we can't find that anywhere else. The fact of the matter is the earth, and I'm not going to get into all the numbers and all these things, but in broad strokes, we know that the earth is the perfect distance from the sun. Any closer, we burn up. Any further away, we freeze to death. But it's not just that. Any closer, and we don't have the, the gases that are necessary in our atmosphere to support life. Any further, we have too much of this, too little of that. Then you come over to the, to the moon itself. The moon, the distance between the earth and the moon creates a gravitational force, a gravitational pull that's so perfect that it controls the tides of the ocean, that they move and they stir. Do you know if we didn't have the gravitational force of the moon, do you know what happened to all the oceans? They would sit still. How well does does sitting water do, right? We couldn't support life. It would be stagnant. Not only that, the gravitational force of the moon and the distance between the earth allows the tides to move in an orderly way so that one moment all of Los Angeles isn't covered in water and the next moment it's brought back. These are fascinating things that scientists do not have an answer for. Well, Stephen Hawking's tried to give an answer for it. In fact, one of the last books that Hawking's wrote, he presented a theory, and he said, listen, the numbers are just astronomical to, to give us this kind of, a, of an earth that is able to support life like we see it. So he said, because statistically, um, it's almost impossible to imagine those conditions all existing at one time. We're not even talking about the eyeball here, right? We're talking about like bigger things. He says, statistically, then we would need to have, listen to this, First, know that our universe, we believe, is, they say it's like it's ever-expanding. We haven't reached the limits of it. It's just, it's huge. It's massive. So Hawking says, so the answer to it is that there must be trillions of universes, and we just happen to live in the one that supports life. Because he knows it's an impossibility. You know that you can't get to this kind of perfected life that we have. See, here's the second evidence. The earth is perfectly designed to support life perfectly designed to support life. Paul says you should see evidences of his eternal power. Check. You should see evidences of his divine nature, this orderliness, this perfection, this this goodness. It's right here. And in fact, we know that these arguments carry so much weight and are so hard 
for what they call the new atheists, those who want to counteract Christianity and take down. We know that these arguments carry so much weight that the majority of all the writings by guys like Sam Harris or Dawkins or others, they all try to come up with explanations for these things because they know, they know if these things are true, then guess what? The claims of this book are true. But there's one more evidence that I want to run through, and it's this. We've been kind of observing nature. We've been looking at these things outside of ourselves. But you and I are part of creation, aren't we? We're part of God's creation. We're part of the created order. Paul says, look for his divine attributes, look for his eternal power in creation. Well, do we see evidences of his divine nature or eternal power manifested in us? Some of you are saying, well, just look at me. Of course there's a God, right? That's not what I'm saying, all right? That's not, that's, don't go there. I'm saying something deeper than that. I think there's evidences of his divine nature in all of us, and we already know it. Every single person here has said at some point, and you've heard me cover this before, every person has said, well, no one deserves to be treated like that. That person should be punished for what they did. People shouldn't act that way. Here's the truth. All human beings have a sense of right and wrong. Throughout all cultures, throughout all times and places, there is a sense of right and wrong that's in every person. Now, depending upon the culture, some of those things shift a little bit, but there's always this innate sense in every person that I shouldn't do this, I should do, do this. We all have what I call moral feelings. We all have moral feelings, and not just religious people. You can't just say, well, I grew up in a Christian home, or I grew up in a Jewish home, or I grew up in a fill-in-the-blank. Everybody has these moral feelings. We feel that was right. We feel that was wrong. We've had somebody say something hurtful to us that we, don't, that we say they shouldn't have said that. We've said things that we said, oh, I shouldn't have said that. But there's more than just simply our moral feelings. We also have a moral sense that goes deeper than that. We all believe that there are standards that exist apart from us by which we evaluate our moral feelings. We have moral feelings, but then we have what I call moral obligations. This, this innate thing with inside of ourselves that says, even if I feel like that is right, or even if I feel like that is wrong, I test those feelings against an even higher standard than my own feelings. Let me show you what I mean by that. When a white supremacist goes into a shopping mall area and shoots up and kills people because they feel like they don't like illegal immigrants, everybody says that ought not to be done. That was wrong. Whatever that guy thinks, whatever that guy feels about those group of people and whatever he feels like is the solution to the problem, that's not it. Nobody stands back and says, no, 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 you got to let him have his feelings. He feels that way, therefore, it's acceptable. Nobody feels that way. Everybody recognizes these moral obligation. There are certain things that ought not to be done. In the same way, if you're walking down the street and you see a group of people all of a sudden robbing a little old lady, you look at that and you say, somebody should stop that. Somebody should engage. Somebody should do the right thing. It's not just what you shouldn't do. It's what you should do. You see, we have moral feelings, we have moral obligations, and the question becomes, where do those things come from? 
Paul says there's evidences of the divine nature in creation. Other passages of Scripture will say that God has impressed his law on the hearts of men. I don't even have to go there to prove this point. I'm just going right here. And then you have C.S. Lewis who tied this all in a nice bow for me. When years ago, C.S. Lewis, who is a Christian author, he said when he was growing up, he believed that the world was cruel. His mom died when he was young. He saw the devastation of World War I. He saw the world as a very cruel place. And he said, if there is a God, there can't be. Because look at how cruel this world is. What kind of God would allow a cruel world like this? But it was in that statement of him assessing the world as cruel that something dawned on him. Listen to what C.S. Lewis would say. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? See what he's saying there? Just pause it. He's saying, wait a second. I say that there's a just and unjustness. Where does that come from? What I was comparing this universe with then, I called it, what was I then comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it's nothing but a private idea of my own mind. But, but if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the, real, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust. Not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. He says, if you have moral feelings and you have this moral obligation, you can't just simply come and say, well, well, it's just my feelings. I'm, I feel this way, you, you feel that way. He's like, at the end of the day, if we actually have these feelings, if I believe that something ought to be done, where does that come from? And he says, it can't come from me and it can't come from you and it can't come from the masses. And so he says, it led me to the God of the Bible. All of humanity... This is my third evidence. All of humanity holds to a moral standard. All of humanity holds to a moral standard. If there's no God, no ultimate standard created by him, then who says? Who says that one choice is better than others? Yet we all live as if it's better to seek peace instead of war, to tell the truth instead of lying, to care and nurture, rather kill and destroy. We believe that these choices are not pointless that it matters which way we choose to live. Every person does that. Every person does that. And so the claim of Genesis chapter 1 is that God created everything. And Paul comes and says, God created everything, but don't take my word for it. Use your brains. Look at the creation because it is evident. His eternal power and his divine nature are on display. And when we do that, we just looked at three things. We see that our universe was caused by something outside of it. We see that not only was our universe caused by something outside of it, but the universe and the world that we live in is perfectly designed for life. And then we come and we say, even with inside of ourselves, we have this moral standard. So why should we accept the claims of Genesis 1? I'm here to tell you it's because the evidence is there to back it up to believe that there is a God, to believe his claim, to believe his answer to the question, how'd we get here? I sometimes watch documentaries, and there was a documentary done about a man who was blind who decided to climb Mount Everest. Why he wanted to do that, I don't know, <laughs> but he wanted to. And as he began to climb Mount Everest, something happened on the climb. 
the Sherpas that were with him began to grumble. They began to grumble because they noticed that while he was climbing, he wasn't falling down all that often. They thought that as a blind man, he would struggle and that he would toil, but he seemed to be doing incredibly well. It got to the point where some of the Sherpas got so disenfranchised that they thought that they were just going to stop helping the guy because they thought he was a liar. So the head Sherpa on the expedition finally came into the tent one day and he said, he said, Mr. Eric, I need to tell you what's, what's happening. I don't know how to approach this, but some of the men, they don't think that you're actually blind. And he said, really? He said, why is that? He said, because you are climbing so well. He said, I was taken back by what he said, but I thought, you know what? This is a big deal. If they need evidence of it, and he turned around and he popped out one of his glass eyeballs and he, and he held it up and he said, here, go, take this and give that to them. And the guy stood, stood back. He said, I can give you the other one if you think that will help them to believe you. And he said, no, 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 Mr. Eric. No, 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 it's okay. We we, we believe you now. We believe you now. In the face of the evidence, the man's doubt quickly turned into acceptance. The evidence was there. The claims that are presented for us, I say, are even all the more evident. Yet why, why in the face of these things do we still find people wanting to reject this? Well, Paul gives the answer. Go back and look at it with me, if you will. He comes and he says these words, starting in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as such or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Earlier, it says that they suppress the truth. We don't want to accept it. He goes on in verse 22, and he says, Claiming to be wise, they became what? Fools. That sounds kind of harsh, but... And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged... Are you ready for this? The truth about God for a what? A lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. My friends, my church family, humanity in the face of such evidence, Paul says, we want to suppress this truth and we want to keep it down. And the reason for that is very simple. If the claims are true, then that means God owns it all. It means that not just this answer, but every answer that God provides must be the one by which you and I live and lead our lives. And so there's a suppression that comes within each and every one of us that, that wants to, to not let these things be true. Because I'm here to tell you, here's, here's one of the implications of this being true. If you accept the claim of Genesis chapter 1-1, that God created everything, then you stand in opposition to every other worldview that exists. There's a worldview of dualism. Most of you probably don't think about dualism all that much, but it is all over the place. It's the idea that in our universe there are competing forces There's good, there's bad, there's light, there's dark, there's yin, there's yang. There's opposites. And they're at war with one another all the time. And we don't know who's going to win and and who's going to take over. And it's presented in our movies and it's presented in our literature. But we, as the people of God, come and we say, if he created everything, we reject dualism. We can't accept that way of thinking. Why? Because Genesis 1-1 says, standing apart from the creation is a God who made everything. There's no question of whether or not he's going to win in a battle if one exists. It's like me arm wrestling my little eight-year-old Cece, right? Like, who's going to win that? 
No, I'm going to win that. Don't you say her. No, every time, every time, I'm not going to let her win. It's a foolish enterprise. Same thing is true here. Dualism falls by the wayside. Materialism has to be rejected. Now, I'm not talking about capitalistic materialism. I'm not talking about, like, you know, buying things. and those. I'm talking about the view that this world is all there is and there's nothing more. What you see, taste, and touch, that's all that exists. And one day, when you die, that's it. A lot of people function their lives that way. Acceptance of certain naturalistic evolutionary theories of our world say you're just a pile of cells and atoms and one day you're going to be no more. Nope. If Genesis 1-1 is accepted, then we reject materialism. We say there's more because there's a God who created the material universe and who exists. Polytheism. The idea that there are many gods. Hinduism is an expression of that. It's rejected because it stands in opposition to there being only one God who made and created all things. Pantheism. Pantheism is like rampant. Pantheism is the idea that God is in everything and everything is, is God. This is like really big in our world today. That goes out the window because God isn't in everything. He's the creator of everything. He's the sustainer of everything. But I'm not God and you're not God and the tree's not God, okay? There's only one God who's over it all. You see how we try and come up with all these ways of making sense of the world? But if Genesis 1-1 is to be believed, then we have to reject every other answer. And, and the reason why I take a whole message just to focus on this one verse and this one claim is this. Listen to me very carefully. If you reject the claim that there is one God who created everything, Paul says about you and me. I'm going to say this as gently as I can. But you're living for a lie. I mean, who amongst us has someone that we love who wants them to base their life on a lie? The converse of this is, if you believe God's word and his answers to be true, then you are living in the truth. Paul also says, if you are not accepting God's answers to life's most important questions. You are worshiping and serving the creation of which you're a part rather than the creator who's, this is a very important word, who he says is blessed forever. If I don't worship the one who's blessed forever, then, then I'm not living in the blessing. The opposite of a blessing is a what? Is a curse. I'm living under the curse. So let me now pull this all the way back. I want to go to a bigger thing now and close with this. Rather than just the idea that God claims that he exists and created everything, I want to go to the bigger question. Do you not just simply believe his answer to that question, but do you believe his answers to all the questions? Because God's word also says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just that some people don't accept God's answers. At some point in our lives, we've all lived for something other than God. And in doing so, we incur, verse 18 says, his wrath. And so we're under that judgment. We're under that, that wrath. And yet, God says, there's a way for you and I to not incur my wrath. There's a way for you to reorder your life, to no longer worship the creation, but to be back to somebody who lives for the creator. And that is only found in the provision of one man, Jesus Christ. So when God comes later and he says, I so love the world that I gave my one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
The question for you and me today is, do I also believe him when he says that? Do I believe the true condition of my heart and your heart is a heart that is turned from God and wants to worship the creation rather than the creator? Have I embraced that? Have I called that for what it is? And then have I acknowledged that I need his saving work through his son Jesus Christ to save and deliver me? Because see, at the end of the day, when we ultimately accept the claim of Genesis 1-1 and the rest of God's answers, we can live the lives that we were meant for. I mean, that's my heart for you today. That's my heart for me. That's my heart for my girls and for my family and for Valley Center is that, is that we would hear the message that God has for us, that we would no longer stand apart from it, but we would accept it, that we would live under it so that we could be a people who lives lives that we were meant to live, lives that worship, love, and obey our God. My hope for you this morning, my hope for myself, is that in taking time to consider the truth of God's word, inviting our minds and our hearts to engage it, that we would have a greater confidence in the faith that we have in our God, who is the creator and the savior of us all. Let's pray together. Lord, as we close this time, we sit under your word and know that in ourselves, we live in a condition where our hearts and minds are darkened. We don't live in the light, but we live in darkness. So, Lord, would you do your work in us, even now? If there's anyone in this room, Lord, who has been living in a way that we have been worshiping the creation rather than the creator, Spirit, would you do a work that you would allow us to come to you to confess that, to be able to say we don't want to live according to our own ways, our own understanding, but we want to live for you. We want to accept your claims. We want to live in the light, not in the darkness any longer. Lord, thank you that you've made a way through Jesus Christ to enter into that light. That you made a way through Jesus Christ for us to be able to hear your word, receive it, and obey it. You call that the gift of, of faith by your grace. And so, Lord, we want to be that kind of a people who live in a faith, Lord, that is driven by the truth. And that we would come and we would bring that to the hearts and minds of people who even today, maybe even in this room, need to confess for the very first time, I need a Savior, I need to be delivered, and I'm choosing today to believe in Christ as my Savior. So to you be the glory both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen.